A few years ago, there was a TV show called The Good Place. I highly recommend it as entertainment, but also as a means of engaging what we think about heaven and hell and who gets in. The Good Place deals with an afterlife where folks are sent to either the good place or the bad place after death. The system is people are assigned a numerical score based on the morality of their conduct in life. Those with the highest scores are sent to the good place where they enjoy eternal happiness and all their wishes are granted. A frozen yogurt store figures prominently in the good place. All those who don't make the score experience an eternity of torture in the bad place. There is no frozen yogurt there. Over its four seasons, the show deals with questions such as whether we can continue to become better people after we've died, and if the point system is skewed unfairly, making it virtually impossible for folks to get into the good place. One of the interesting things about the good place is that the determination of who gets into heaven is based solely on the moral life that one led on earth. There is no mention of God or Jesus or religious participation. So residing in heaven is based solely on right action versus right belief. This general understanding of who gets into heaven finds its biblical expression in Matthew 25. There Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food? Or that we saw you thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Now, let's look at this who gets in question from a different angle. There's an old joke that tells of a busload of new residents arriving at the pearly gates. St. Peter is taking them on an orientation tour of heaven. He shows them the beautiful botanical gardens and he leads them past the rec center and its bowling alley and they get to see the cafeteria and the coffee bar. And then they're waking, making their way down a hallway and they pass a closed door. And one of the newbies asks St. Peter, hey, what's in there? And St. Peter replies, oh, you don't want to open that door. That's where the Catholics are and they think they're the only ones here. Now, I tell that joke as a former Roman Catholic, and I will quickly allow that you can substitute Baptist or any other exclusive denomination, and the joke still works. This joke represents an understanding of who gets into heaven that skews heavily toward right belief over right action. Thus, believing the right thing about Jesus and following the precepts of one's denomination is more important than living a morally exemplary life. This general understanding of who gets into heaven finds its biblical representation in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only son of God. Additionally, this understanding is found in Luke's story of the criminals that are crucified on either side of Jesus. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And indeed, we have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Today is the final week in our four week sermon series on heaven and hell. I've been really impressed with the way that Bob has brought to bear on this discussion what the tradition says, what scripture says, what our Episcopal catechism says, and most relevantly, what Jesus says. As we wrap up our discussion, we must acknowledge that we don't know the answers to these big questions. So you get to hear the gospel of Bob and you get to hear the gospel of Mary and you yourself probably have a gospel on this topic. This is not only valid, I believe it's God's desire. I believe God desires that we wrestle with these big, meaningful, existential questions. Just like Jacob wrestled with God beside the river and was forever changed by the experience. And as we've mentioned before, it is one of the gifts of Anglicanism that we preference not only scripture and tradition, but our reason and experience as well. This wrestling and questioning is transformative in and of itself. It's not about arriving at the right answer. It's about the journey. If Jesus had wanted to give us a rule book, 
a systematic theology so that we'd know definitively the answers to these questions, he could have done so. But what Jesus chose to do was to tell us stories and parables. He chose to eat with us and walk with us and live with us. To emphasize our trust in him as the definitive revelation of God. And to prioritize relationship in love of God and love of neighbor. And speaking for myself, I don't want to have the definitive answers. I am comforted by the knowledge that I worship a God who is bigger than my ability to understand. So, the gospel according to Mary is quite consistent with the image of heaven and hell expressed in our catechism. This definition is found appropriately, in my opinion, in the final section of the catechism titled The Christian Hope. Here, as Bob shared previously, we are told, by heaven, we mean eternal life in our enjoyment of God. By hell, we mean eternal death in our rejection of God. Heaven is being in God's eternal presence with the communion of saints. Hell is being separated from God. So while all of this comes with the caveat that God is God and I am not, that I cannot know these mysteries fully this side of the veil, and that the scriptural witness both supports and refutes this understanding, I believe that heaven and hell are not necessarily geographical locations, but states of being. Pope John Paul II, who cannot by any stretch of the imagination be considered theologically liberal, said that heaven and hell are not physical places, but are states of being, either in a living relationship with God or choosing separation from the source of all life and joy. This is supported by the understanding of eternal life that is developed in John's gospel. For John, eternal life is a quality of life here and now, not a place and time separate from our current lives. Through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to live lives here and now that are increasingly formed into the shape of Christ. It begins this side of the grave and extends to the other side. Our life in God after death will be a continuation of our relationship with God, not a new separate thing. It's this understanding that's reflected in the saying that's been attributed to Catherine of Siena that it's heaven all the way to heaven or it's hell all the way to hell. And because we profess a final judgment, in our creed that we recite each week, we say that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Because we profess a final judgment, this understanding of the fluidity between life here and the life to come should bring us comfort. The concept of a final judgment is often a source of anxiety for folks. And yet... The Jesus who will judge us at the consummation of all things 
is the same Jesus who gently and lovingly judges us now, day by week by year. It is the same Jesus who works in us such that we are convicted of our unloving ways and such that we are transformed more and more into the people that we are created to be. We have nothing to fear as we move from life in Christ in history to life in Christ outside of history. I believe that it is God's perfect will that all will be with him forever. And while I will readily admit that I do not want to be sitting next to Hitler on the bus to heaven, I have to allow for the possibility that that might in fact be the case. But the same God who might find a way to redeem Hitler is the one who showers me with grace in every breath I take. I cannot accept grace for myself while trying to withhold it from others. This is biblically supported in that Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Further, I don't think there is a potential for accidentally falling into hell. I don't think we come up a few points short or die with some unconfessed sin or don't say the right words in our profession of faith and somehow find ourselves separated from God forever. I think eternal separation from God, which is hell, comes about through intentional, persistent rejection of God and God's love. And even then, I believe that scripture and tradition leave room for an understanding that God continues to pursue us in love even after we have left this life that those who die separated from God will continue to be wooed by God so that like the prodigal son, we might choose in our free will to return to his loving embrace and to membership in his household. I wanna finish by returning to the concept of the Christian hope. Referencing those opening illustrations that we shared, our hope is not in our moral lives or in our right beliefs that somehow merit eternal life. Our hope is in God, both the God that is the ground of all creation and the God who reaches out to us in love in the person of Jesus Christ. It is a hope grounded in our loving and trusting relationship with God. The passage from Revelation that we heard earlier tells us that God will create a new heaven and a new earth, which implies that the salvation of all creation will be realized. In John, Jesus says, I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. And elsewhere, he says, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus saves all, the whole world, whether we acknowledge it or not. 
Jesus' redemptive salvation of the world is not reliant on our assent to make it operational. It simply is. It is God's prerogative to make salvation available to everyone, regardless of how they lived or what they believed. And so we are justified in our hope that the God who loves all and providentially cares for all might see fit to redeem all. I'm going to close by sharing the final question and answer that can be found in our beautiful, hopeful catechism. What then is our assurance as Christians? Our assurance as Christians is that nothing, not even death, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.